You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Cornelius Plantiga says that human depravity is the one part of Christian doctrine that can actually be proven. I think that's right. There's evidence of the fall of humanity into sin everywhere. Just look around. All you got to do is look around to see the devastating effects of sin. We see it in the headlines. There's war in Ukraine. There's rioting in France. There's mass shootings in America. Sin leads to death everywhere. We don't have to just look at the headlines. We can just look at our own hearts, can't we? Like in our own hearts, there's selfishness and anger and pride and bitterness and sometimes a willingness to assassinate the very character of another person. We have that in us. And so sin leads to death in all our relationships. Genesis chapter three tells us why the world is the way it is, why it's so broken. We talked about it last week. We said that the world is broken because sin corrupts everything. And then on top of that, it ultimately leads to death. And so Genesis chapter three is a bleak, dark chapter, isn't it? It leaves us wondering, is there any hope for redemption here? Like, is there any good news in the midst of all this brokenness? Are there any signs of grace amidst the devastation wrought by the fall? In his book, the solace of fierce landscapes. Belden Lane talks about the months he spent in a nursing home with his dying mother. She was slowly dying of cancer. And he says that in that place full of dying people, broken people, he saw God's grace in some unexpected ways. This is what he writes. He says, all theologizing, if it's worth its salt, must submit to the test of hospital gowns droning television sets, and food spilled in the clumsy effort to eat. What can be said of God that may be spoken without shame in the presence of those who are dying? That was my one test of theological method. I met a woman by the elevator each day whose mouth was always wide open as if uttering a silent scream. In a bed down the hallway lay a scarcely recognizable body twisted by crippling arthritis. Another woman cried out every few moments, desperately calling for help in an emergency that never went away. Who were these people? They represented the God from whom I repeatedly flee. Hidden in the grave clothes of death, This God remains unavailable to me in my anxious denial of aging and pain. He's good news only to those who are broken. But to them, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, lurking in the shadows beyond the nurse's desk, promising life in the presence of death. I love that image of God. A God who promises life in the very presence of death. So apparently... God's grace shows up in even the darkest, most broken places. And I think it's harder, hard to imagine a darker, more broken chapter in the Bible than Genesis 
chapter three. We've seen it, we've looked at it the past couple of weeks. Satan has tempted the man and the woman to defy God, to go their own way, to walk away from God. And sin has entered the world unraveling every relationship we have. Our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with ourselves is broken, our relationship with others is broken, our relationship to the very earth, to the very creation is broken. Death has become the defining reality of the world. So this is, a, again, a dark and broken chapter. And yet, right here in the middle of this account of the fall, there are glimmers of redemption. God is at work here, like not just judging sin, but also redeeming from sin, restoring out of sin. Redemption is a work of God's grace, and, and God's grace is actually all over chapter three here in Genesis. But grace doesn't always look like we think it's gonna look. Grace doesn't always feel like we think it should feel. We just assume that grace is gonna be soft and warm and comforting like chicken soup for the soul. That's how grace is supposed to feel in our life. But sometimes grace has sharp edges, right? Sometimes grace hurts. Like in our story today, God confronts Adam and Eve in their sin. Then he kicks them out of the garden, kicks them out of the house. That hurts. And yet, as we'll see, there's grace in it. So Genesis 3 actually shows us in story form an ongoing pattern of how God deals with our sin. So when I say it's a story, I mean it's something that happened and it happened once, but it's also an ongoing paradigm, a pattern for how God relates to us when we sin. Right? He, he, he not only judges our sin, which we looked at last week, but he also seeks to redeem us. He seeks to restore us by his grace. And so I want to look at two ways we see God's redeeming grace in this chapter. Uh, first, we see God's gracious pursuit, uh, and then we see God's gracious provision. All right, let's look at God's gracious pursuit first. Look there at Genesis 3, verse 8. If you want to turn there, there's some Bibles in front of you. It's on page 2 in those Bibles. Genesis 3. Verse eight, God's gracious pursuit. And they, they being the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So like we've seen in the past couple of weeks, the man and the woman have sinned and God is not passively standing by at this point. He, God is active. God is walking through the garden. God is moving through the garden. He's on the move. When I read that, it makes me think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. When Mr. Beaver says to the kids, they say Aslan is on the move. The, the king, who's a, who's a great lion, is on the move. Uh, and what do we do with that? Like, if you hear that a lion is on the move in your neighborhood, what do you do? <laughs> you hide, right? Because lions eat people. Lions destroy people. So that's what Adam and Eve are doing here. They're hiding. They're, they're not seeking God. They're not looking for God. This is really important to note because contrary to popular belief, we don't go looking for God. Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. Sinners don't seek out God because sinners don't want to be, sinners don't want to be confronted with their 
creator. So if we have any dealings with God at all, it's because God has taken the initiative to pursue us, which is what God is doing here. He's pursuing them. He's seeking the lost. Look at verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? God calls to the man. This is how a relationship with God works. God calls us first, right? He makes the first move. Just like he's primary, he makes the first move in creation. He speaks first. Also in redemption, he speaks first. God calls, and he calls in such a gentle way here. I want you to notice that from verse verse 9 to verse 13, God only asks questions. Isn't that interesting? In these verses, he doesn't make any statements to the man and the woman. He doesn't lecture them. He doesn't give them a sermon. He doesn't accuse them. He only asks questions, and he's not asking questions for his own benefit to find the answers because he already knows the answers. He's asking them questions for their good, for their benefit. He's pursuing them. He's wooing them in a sense. By the way, this is actually really good parenting. Right? Who knows that God would know how to be a good parent? Uh, but the, God's method here is, 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 is tremendous. Look what he says. He says to Adam, where are you? Which is a funny question to ask because he knows where they are. He's God. But this is a question. It's, a, this, it's an invitation uh, to, to have them come out of hiding, right? To, to draw them out. It's like when you play hide and seek with a three-year-old. You, typically, the little kid will hide like right under the, t- the dining room table. You can see them. They're in plain as daylight, clear that, clearly, but you play along, and you're like, where are you? And then finally, they can't take it anymore, and they run out of their hiding place. That's what's happening here. This question is meant to draw them out of hiding. Verse 10, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So Adam is honest about his condition here. I was afraid because I was naked. Sin had laid him bare and he felt it. For the first time in his life, he felt exposed, right? He felt vulnerable, he felt ashamed. He was not only literally naked, this is a, nakedness is a metaphor for shame here. Like when you feel shame, it means you're ill at ease with yourself. You don't feel good about yourself. And so you try to cover You try to hide, which is what Adam does here. And so God asks two more questions. Look at verse 11. God says, who told you that you were naked? And then he says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see what God's doing here? He's counseling He's counseling them. A a good counselor asks lots of questions, don't they? Because they just want to get the other person talking to to, to help reveal what's going on below the surface. And so God's like, naked? Who told you that? Talk about that. What does that mean? How does that make you feel? Tell me about the tree thing. (laughs) What happened there? What was going on there? He's counseling. God is being so gentle here. He's counseling Adam toward confession. He's he's giving Adam an opportunity to come clean, to confess, which is what happens in verse 12. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So this is a confession, but it is a confession with lots of qualifiers, right? 
Adam admits his sin, but he's clinging to some shred of self-righteousness because we don't want to admit the full extent of our sin and brokenness, right? We don't want to be totally exposed. It's too vulnerable. And so we're like, yeah, I did it, but I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for the other person. Yeah, I did it, God, but I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for the circumstance that you put me in, self-justification. But Adam finally does confess. Even if it's a weak confession, he still confesses right there at the end of verse 12. He says, and I ate. I did it. It was me. Verse 13, God continues to ask questions, and now he asks the woman, what is this that you have done? So he's still counseling. He's like, let's talk about this. Tell me more about what you've done. And she also confesses, but also in a qualified way. She puts some of the blame on the serpent. Like she's still holding on to a measure of self-justification. But in the end, she does confess. Right there at the end of verse 13. And I ate. I did it. Here's the question. Why does God want them to confess? Like, why does he want them to say it? He knows they did it. He knows what happened. He knows what he's gonna do about it. We looked at the consequences of sin last week. Why does God want them to confess? Well, for their own good. He knows they need it. Listen to what David says in Psalm 32 about sin and confession. Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, when I held it in, when I hid it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So it was like a hot summer day, like we understand, just pressing down on David, zapping all the energy that he had when he hid his sin. But he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, God, and I didn't cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave my sin. And so confession all of a sudden takes him from what seemed to be illness to health, from, from heaviness and burden to lightness, right? from bondage to freedom. See, when we hold on to our sin, when we hide our sin, it actually begins to affect who we are, like in our person. Hiding sin affects us physically. I mean, there are studies on the negative impact of guilt on our very bodies. Hiding sin affects us emotionally. We're depressed, we're anxious, we're angry. Hiding sin affects us relationally. We're we're distant, we're short-tempered, we're superficial and fake with others. So hiding sin totally messes with who we are in our person. And if that's true, then confession is not punishment. Confession is a grace, right? God knows we need it, and he also knows we wouldn't do it on our own, so he pursues us that we might turn to him and confess. What's interesting in this story is that God does not seek confession from the serpent. He just curses the serpent. He doesn't curse the man and the woman. Why? Because he doesn't want them cursed. He loves them. He he wants to redeem them, and confession is the first step in our experience of redemption. You know that, right? Confession doesn't cause our redemption, but it's the first step in how we experience redemption. And so let me ask you a few personal questions related to confession. How do you picture God coming to you? 
when you sin? Like, do you imagine him as a ferocious lion seeking to devour you so you hide? Do you think of God as an angry judge who's seeking to prosecute you? Or do you see him as a loving father who's pursuing you in love, right, because he's seeking to change your heart? How do you view the need for confession? Like, do you view it as a punishment or as a grace? Like, if it's something that you feel like I have to do it because I got caught, I got busted in sin, and so I gotta do it, then it feels like punishment. I wanna tell you why it's grace. There, There is something powerful about articulating our own sin. It's more powerful than someone telling us about our sin. Like, if you tell me that I hurt you, that's, that's significant. But if I have to articulate how I hurt you and ask for your forgiveness, that's life-changing, right? That's, that's powerful. God knows we won't experience the depth of his grace unless we can articulate the depth of our own sin and brokenness. There, there can be no reconciliation without confession, and God wants to reconcile us to himself. Here's a final question about confession. How do you practice confession? Think about it in your own life. Is it something that you do really quick to get it over with? Like just go through the motions, say the right thing so God will forgive me and I can move on, like as if God is some sort of spiritual vending machine dispensing forgiveness? Or do you treat confession as personal and and relational? Because it is, because sin is personal and, and relational. Sometimes I think we need to linger in confession, like we need to slow down and not be in a hurry to gain relief from the pain of our sin. Let God be the one who speaks peace to you. Don't don't rush into it, let God speak peace because confession is relational, it's not mechanical, right? It's the first step in our ongoing experience of redemption, which is why it's a grace. God graciously pursues us so that we might confess. We see that gracious pursuit right here in this chapter, but we also see something else. We see God's gracious provision. Let's look at that. Let's look at the end of the chapter. God has pursued Adam and Eve, and now he provides everything they need for redemption. I think sometimes we're so focused on the fall in Genesis 3 that we miss the redemption that happens at the end of this chapter. Uh, And so, Let's look at what he provides here. God, first thing God provides is the promise of new life. God promises new life, and he provides new life. Look at verse 20. In verse 20 in chapter three, listen to how hopeful this verse is. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living So this, obviously, this verse comes right after verse 19, and you remember what verse 19 says. Verse 19 ends like this, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the man and the woman have just been confronted with the reality of death, like you're gonna return to dust, y'all are gonna die. That's a reality in your life. But right here in the very face of death, God promises them new life. Adam, in this moment of faith in God's word, names his wife Eve, Remember previously in Genesis 2, verse 23, he had simply called her woman, which is what she is. She is a woman, but it's not who she is. Who she is is Eve, 
It's a new name and it has incredible theological significance. Eve means life. It means life giver. Adam names his wife life because she's gonna be the mother of all living. See, God wasn't gonna eradicate the human race. God's intention was to proliferate the human race. So this is redemption, right? Those who deserve death are given new life. What's even more here is that one of the future descendants of the woman would be the final redeemer. Verse 15 says that one of her offspring would one day crush the head of the serpent. So God not only redeems Adam and Eve and gives them new life, but he also says to them, hey, y'all get to participate in my program of redemption to bring new life to the whole world. You get to be a part of that plan of redemption. This is grace. God provides new life. But he also provides new clothing. New clothing. Look at verse uh, 21. It says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. So God looks at their clothes and he's like, nope, <laughs> that ain't gonna work. Y'all need some new clothes, right? He, God knew that the clothes that they had made for themselves were not adequate covering for life in, in a fallen world. Remember when they first sinned, they realized they were naked and it says in verse seven, they, they took some fig leaves and they sewed them together and they made loincloths and that's what they covered themselves with. And actually ever since that moment, the human race has been involved in an enterprise of self-covering. That's what we do. We self-cover and our self-covering always comes up short. It always falls way short. God knew that they needed something more substantial for covering, something made by his hands, not their hands. And so according to verse 21, some animals had to die in order for them to be sufficiently clothed. And this is what some say is the first hint of substitutionary atonement in the Bible. Substitutionary atonement is just a fancy way of saying that an innocent one died so that a guilty one could be covered. That's what happened. An innocent one died so that a guilty one could be clothed. Because covering sin is not simple, it's not easy, it's not quick, it's not fast, it's not like grabbing some leaves off a tree and sewing them together. Covering sin is costly. It's painful. It's bloody even. Sin produces suffering and death. So it makes sense that covering sin would also come out of suffering and death. And so this verse points us ahead to Israel's sacrificial system in their worship. But it also ultimately points us to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for sin. Jesus suffered and died so that we could be adequately clothed, clothed in his righteousness, because we can't clothe ourselves. We can't cover our own sin, even though we still try. We still try all the time. We've all got fig leaves. We've all got false coverings that we sew together to try to make ourselves look okay and feel okay. Maybe it's our own good works. It's our own religious devotion. It's our gifts and abilities. It's our performance, our possessions. Whatever it is, whatever the fig leaves are, they cannot cover our sin. They can't do it. They can't redeem us. They're not adequate clothing. Only the blood of Jesus can cover our sin. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's awesome. Only in Christ can we say that. God provides new life. 
He provides new clothing. And lastly, here at the end of the chapter, he provides protection for them. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. And we know that us is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So God is talking to himself. This is intra-Trinitarian dialogue. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then God cuts off his sentence for some reason. But then it says, therefore the Lord God sent the man out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, then he guards the way to the tree of life, which doesn't sound like grace, does it? It sounds like judgment, it sounds like punishment. They're getting kicked out of the house. And in one sense, it is judgment, but we also can't miss the fact that God is protecting them here. God is protecting them from, their own, from themselves, from their own choices, because if they eat from the tree of life, God knows they're gonna live forever in a state of sin, immortal fallenness, and so God graciously protects them from their own choices. See, sin gives us a bent toward harming ourselves. We have a bent toward hurting ourselves. We're all like addicts in this regard. Like an addict will keep doing the same thing again and again, even though they know they're hurting themselves. And we think, why don't they just stop doing that? Why don't they just change their behavior? Why don't, why don't they just make different choices? And those are rational questions. But addiction is not rational, right? An addict needs intervention. Someone outside themselves who steps in to help them, to protect them from their own choices. Gerhard, Gerhard Ford says, as sinners, we're addicted to ourselves and our own projects. And we're seeking to give those projects eternal legitimacy. So God intervenes here, right? He won't let sin be eternally legitimized. It's, it's, it's actually only by God's grace that the human race is preserved here. It's his protection. Even though it feels harsh, it's tough love. And I think a worshipful experience or exercise uh, to do sometime if you've never done this, is just to ask yourself this question. How has God protected me from me? It's a good question. Like how has God intervened in my life through people, through circumstances, even through painful moments of discipline to protect me from my own choices? It's God's grace. So, what happens when we sin? What happens when we sin? Well, if we only had Genesis 3 to answer that question, we would know, number one, God graciously pursues us in order that we might confess and turn back to him, and then God graciously provides everything we need for redemption. Redemption is 100% a work of God's grace. This story in Genesis 3 ends with Adam and Eve being driven out of Eden driven out of the garden, and we're just like them. We, we still live east of Eden. Uh, as Christians, we've already experienced redemption, partially, but we haven't experienced redemption fully. We, we still deal, deal, deal with sin. We still deal with brokenness. We, we deal with death. Things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. But we also have a sure and certain hope 
of full redemption, right? Because we know that we have a faithful redeemer. That redeemer is actually hinted at here in Genesis 3, in verse 15. Listen to Genesis 3:15. God is talking to the serpent, to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse has been called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. This is the first good news in the scripture. What it's telling us is that one of Eve's descendants would one day crush the head of Satan, crush the head of the serpent. It's like a snake gets let loose in the house and one man representing the entire family goes in after him. And that man ends up crushing the head of the serpent, right? But in the process, the serpent bites the man on the heel and the man dies. And that's what happens with our redeemer. Jesus died to conquer Satan, to crush Satan. Jesus died to redeem us from our sin, right? But then we know that he rose again to conquer death forever, to defeat it forever. It's really interesting. At the beginning of the story here in Genesis 3, um, the human race is barred from the tree of life. We can't go near it. But in Revelation 22, at the very end of the story, the very last chapter of the Bible, the tree of life shows up again. Uh, and the tree of life is actually fully accessible for a redeemed humanity. Revelation 22 says the tree of life is for the healing of the nations. And, and it's, there's no longer any curse. And that future access to the tree of life is actually only possible because of what happened in the middle of the story. We know that Jesus was hung on a tree. Uh, it looked like a tree of death, but it ended up producing life. Jesus was hung on that tree to, to pay for sin once and for all so that we could have access again to the tree of life. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who's the king, who's the creator, who's the judge, is also the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Our creator is also our redeemer, and we're called to walk by faith in him, trusting in him. Let's thank him for his grace toward us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.